registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting-edge practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. Welcome to today's episode where I am joined by Alexander Christ, and he is a renowned health expert, health and wellness expert, whose recent work focuses on self-regulation, perseverance, and motivation. And he worked at a hospital system in Florida, helping them to create programs on resilience and sleep, which is why he's here today, because we are going to be talking all about sleep. So welcome, Alex. Alexander. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Yes, it's a name change. I threw it on you last minute. No, no, it's good. Um, So... I was saying, you know, that's one of the main reasons why you're here, but also because we had a phone conversation recently, which we kind of just started talking about sleep and it happened very naturally. And it was clearly a topic that you were very passionate about and I was very passionate about. And so little did you know, you were just secretly being interviewed to come on the podcast. <laughs> well, I'm excited. I love it. Like sleep is one of those things I feel I could talk about all day long. And I do have my struggles with it as well. So it's not, I don't want anyone to think that I'm just this perfect sleeper as well. It, it definitely comes and goes, but you know, we'll talk about some things that we can do to help improve that sleep. Yeah. Awesome. So sleep is important for many reasons, as Alexander just said, and I did my master's thesis on sleep in relation to obesity and weight management So I'm well-versed on this topic and I preach it to all of my clients. It's important, especially with gut health and overall health, but especially right now, because we are facing unprecedented times, mental health issues are on the rise. COVID has changed people's lives in a way that has most likely impacted their sleep, some for the better, but a lot of my clients for the worse. So today we're going to talk about things that can negatively impact your sleep, what the ideal sleeping environment looks like, the potential harms of taking naps, and ways that you can improve your sleep. And you might be surprised to learn that the blue light blocking glasses might not be worth more than a $10 investment. So that's a little teaser for you listening. So let's kind of start with some basics about the sleep cycle, because um, I think when we're talking about this, this is probably going to come up a lot, I would imagine. And I just want the listeners to know kind of what we're referring to when we um, discuss the stages. So we cycle through five distinct sleeping stages, three to five times each night. And during the first four stages, our heart rate and our temperature drop, our muscles relax our brain waves slow down and we sink deeper and deeper into sleep. And that heart rate going down, the temperature drop, that's going to be really important in our discussion. The fifth phase of sleep is rapid eye movement, also known as REM, which is a shallow sleep stage 
when brain waves speed up to waking levels and our eyes dart back and forth, and this is when most of our dreams occur. And a really interesting fact that Alex, Alexander, I don't think we've talked about yet, but the, the REM stage of sleep actually provides what I've learned through research to be what, what I call overnight therapy or this purging of emotions. And you're nodding your head because it sounds like you're already familiar with this. But we yeah. take, um, you know, emotional concerns or trauma and we process them during this time. And our brain actually tries to dampen these events or stressors in order to cope. So another reason why this REM stage is really, really important. Yeah, I've actually read a couple of studies on people getting over relationships or breakups and people that got adequate sleep after after that breakup actually kind of bounce back more quickly than people that didn't mm-hmm. so it's i mean it's, it's sleep is just so interesting because it does hit everything right i think when we talk about exercise nutrition like you speak of like it's amazing how interconnected everything is but it's not just you know i used to just think it was thing we would do just to kind of recover and not be tired but there's so much more that goes into it than that yeah, absolutely. And I think when we talk about any system in the body, like you said, it, it is all connected and we can't really just look at one isolated system. So let's talk about some things that disrupt sleep. I think stress could be the first topic because I think it's, I mean, I think we all struggle with this to some extent, right? Yes. And it's actually interesting. Fitbit put out, uh, they published some of their, uh, their data from their users and during this whole COVID pandemic, it's interesting to see how sleep was disrupted a lot at the beginning because of the uncertainty, the higher levels of stress, the unknown, the fear. And as the pandemic went on, there's actually been a shift where people are actually sleeping about 15 minutes more a night than they were at the beginning. So it's, I mean, hits right on that idea of stress because I mean, stress is, it's kind of a double-edged sword because if you have a lot of stress in your life that you're not managing effectively, it can potentially negatively impact your sleep. And if you don't get enough sleep, you're going to let things or let stressors impact you in a negative way throughout the day. So less sleep is going to lead to more stress and more stress is going to lead to less sleep. So it's kind of a vicious cycle. Yeah, it's that that chicken and the egg kind of situation. And I talk a lot about this with relation to gut health because people will say, well, does issues in the gut microbiome impact, you know, hormonal imbalance or thyroid or does, is it the thyroid? And it's both, you know, there's a bi-directional relationship and, um, you know, we'll definitely talk about how to, how to kind of stay on top of some of these things. So stress is obviously something that, you know, there's, there's multiple different ways to manage this, but knowing that it does have such a significant impact is, just making it it a focus of priority to really make sure that we're we're addressing this area. Um, you know, of course, mental health issues like depression and anxiety, and um, you know, either further you know conditions that require some sort of support. I think therapy is is definitely one recommendation that I have for a lot of people. There's a lot of stigma around seeing a therapist or talking to someone, and. I think especially during this time, it I personally see someone, I've been in therapy my whole life and I've seen, you know, dramatic benefits from it, but addressing stress in whatever way, you know, is appropriate for you, whether it's talking to someone, whether it's practicing things like, you know, yoga or meditation or, 
you know, spending certain time with people that you love, but addressing that is, is going to be key in, in terms of, um, improving your quality of sleep. Yeah. And I just, I just think the more intentional we can be with our sleep, I oftentimes believe that people are very passive with it. They just go lay down and expect to just sleep magically throughout the night. And then when they don't, they think it's something's wrong. Like they'll oftentimes, you know, jump to insomnia, which is, you know, it is a sleep disorder, but oftentimes like sleep deprivation isn't insomnia. There's other factors into it. So I always tell uh, clients that I work with is go get, go talk to someone, go talk to a sleep expert, go get a sleep di- study done yourself. Don't self-diagnose and just say, well, I didn't sleep well, so I have insomnia, mm. but actually go get it diagnosed. Yeah. And some people, you know, they like to have that you know, diagnosis, because it, it gives you some relief of, oh, okay, that, that makes sense. That's why. But sometimes that diagnosis is not a good place to start at, right? Especially because if we just, you know, write it off as insomnia, we don't consider the other factors that, that we do have in our control that can significantly improve our sleep. Absolutely. Anything in particular that you have been doing during, um, you know, either the pandemic or just in general that you practice that really helps you uh, manage stress? Yeah, I think for me, talking to people is a big one. I I think with people being more isolated now than ever, uh, I mean, if you live with people, sometimes you can kind of have too much time with them. So maybe getting off and even just having conversations with people outside the house or I live alone. uh, Well, I did through the beginning of the pandemic and it was amazing how it was easy to just kind of be isolated. If you weren't intentional about it, you'd let a day go and you wouldn't talk to anyone or maybe two days. So just being very intentional and picking up the phone, talking to people. I love to get outside, move. Uh, physical activity is actually down since the beginning of the pandemic. So it's something that if we're moving less and doing less exercise or physical activity, we're probably not going to sleep as well either. Mm. So I think exercise can really help with stress as well. Um, and any of the programs I teach on resilience, it's really just taking control, focusing on the things you can control on or control and just come up with an action plan and it's just being intentional in pretty much everything we do. I know that can sound like a big lift, but it's it's amazing what these small things can do. Yeah. These small habits can make such a big difference. I personally think the getting outside one is huge because if we're sleeping, working, eating in the same environment, that can, you know, not even, you might not even realize how stressful that can be to not have that change of pace or the fresh air or even just the commute. Some, some of my clients are saying to me, you know, I miss, miss seeing other people, having the commute, getting outside of my environment. So I think those, those are some great tips that people can hopefully pick up on. Now, alcohol, this is a big one um, that can impact your quality of sleep. And I, you know, figured we just get it over with right, right off the bat and talk about it and kind of how it impacts our body so that people can understand why on a physiological level, it can impact uh, our quality of sleep. And we can also kind of tie in some wearable device stuff here. So resting heart rate goes up after we drink. It increases our core body temperature. And what did we just talk about? The REM cycle of sleep. We want our heart rate to go down and we want our core body temperature to go down. So right off the bat there, we see that alcohol is not supportive of good quality sleep. Yeah, and alcohol, it's it's a good point to bring up because it's something that I think there's a lot of things that we do as humans that we think may be helping our sleep, but it's actually hurting it. And I think alcohol is probably one of the top 
because it's something that you have a couple of drinks of glasses of wine and you're going to, you might fall asleep more quickly, but alcohol is a sedative and uh, sedative is not sleep. So I like to think of it that way. And alcohol does two things that really disrupts your sleep is it, it fragments your sleep. So whether you know it or not, you kind of have these small awakenings throughout the night. Like maybe you're not completely awake, but you're in this lighter level of sleep. Uh, kind of like if you've ever been laying in bed and you feel yourself falling and you catch yourself, that's something that happens in that light level. You're not quite asleep, but you're transitioning. Mm. But throughout the night, you wake up more and more. So you're not getting continuous sleep. And then the second thing that alcohol does is it suppresses the REM sleep. So the, the REM cycle, the rapid eye movement, where we see so much of the, uh, <laughs> the uh, cognitive recovery uh, and so many of the things that go in with that, like you said, with emotions. And if we suppress that, so even if on paper we're getting eight hours of sleep, we're not getting eight hours of quality sleep. And it's just disrupting that cycle. So it's, it's scary. And I, I should probably say that I like to have, I like to have a drink from time to time. I'm not anti-alcohol. So we want to talk about being practical as well. And we don't want to just say, Hey, never drink again. Uh, and it will, you know, I'll tease it with it. Cause it's something I talk about in routine, but like just protecting those two hours before bed can be very impactful. And, you know, if you're drinking up until the very end of your night, that alcohol is going to be very present in your system. And just, it's interesting to see when I have two or more drinks, my resting heart rate throughout the night is about 10 beats a minute higher. Mm. So you're thinking of sleep as this important restorative and recovery. Uh, but if you're not recovering, I mean, my heart's working almost overdrive to uh, kind of compensate because of maybe the dehydration. So that's something I always say, if you are going to drink, try to make sure you're staying hydrated. Uh, even if you can, you know, every other one have a glass of water mm-hmm. or, and I think you can, you had a couple of good ideas that you mentioned yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I hate to, to tell people this, you know, I, I actually had a client who was, he was using a whoop to measure his resting heart rate. He was very into the metrics of it all. And he actually purchased my CBD oil and said, you know, I've noticed that my resting heart rate, which is typically negatively impacted by the alcohol, is actually improved by doing the CBD oil. And so that's one tool, which I don't like people to rely on that. You know, I think, you know, your, your advice is very practical and I never tell my clients to cut out alcohol altogether. It's the same thing, you know, really just trying to advise two hours before bedtime. If you can cut off, that would be great. And, um, you know, making sure that you're staying hydrated that as well. But um, also probiotics. So if you are drinking, that's going to impact your gut health, which is then going to impact your gut microbiome. And we know that our gut microbiome produces melatonin as well as other neurotransmitters that can help regulate sleep like GABA, serotonin, dopamine. And so sometimes I'll have my clients, you know, either make a mixed drink with kombucha or I will have them take a high quality probiotic supplement right before they go to bed. And more often than not, my clients will find that this helps their quality of sleep and they wake up actually feeling a little bit more rested. Now, do I have exact research to support these exact mechanisms? Not necessarily, but we know that probiotics can help protect the gut and um, naturally through food sources and, and also through supplementation. And if it, if you feel good, then I don't need a research study to say that you are feeling better. Yeah. I love that. I mean, we talked a little bit last night about that. I mean, we both love research. Don't get me wrong, but sometimes I think we, 
we rely on it too heavily instead of just how we're feeling. And I know with sleep, it's something that we just have to learn our bodies. And I like to think about this as across the board, if it comes to exercise, nutrition, anything we're talking about, but know what works for you and what doesn't work for you. I have become a human guinea pig on myself. I try different things all the time and I give it time. I mean, so often people, they ask how much sleep you need. And I say, you know, it's typically between seven and nine hours. And if it's somebody that's getting five hours of sleep a night, they go and get eight hours tonight. They're going to wake up tomorrow and probably not feel that great because they're not used to getting that. And so I always say it's, you know, we need to give it time and also slowly transition in. And that's one of the things I always hit on is, you know, if you can just get 15 minutes more tonight, like don't try to think of it as, oh, geez, I'm two hours sleep deprived. I need to make sure I get to eight. Like just try to get 15 minutes more and do that for a week. And then maybe add a little more. It's more realistic to find 15 out, fifteen minutes in your day than maybe two hours. Yeah, so much it's more just something, realistic. Like simple things like that. That's yeah. such a great point. Be realistic about the habits. Um, now caffeine. So caffeine is a big one. And I work with a lot of clients on, on reducing their caffeine intake typically because I always like to say, because America runs on Dunkin'. But caffeine can be a tricky substance for a lot of people. And from a digestive perspective, you know, if you're drinking caffeine first thing in the morning, I actually just looked at some research prior to this on accident about how caffeine can impact your blood sugar control negatively. So it can lead to you having more blood sugar swings, which can lead to, you know, hunger, irritability, low energy, things like that if you are drinking coffee on an empty stomach after a poor night's sleep. So that's just one random tidbit that I just pulled into this, but you know, it's also very individualized. So we metabolize caffeine as well as alcohol differently, individually, person to person. So if I have a client who's struggling with sleep in particular, I'm advising no caffeine after noon, and I'm always having them have at least water and at least one balanced meal before they even consider introducing caffeine into their routine. Yeah. Caffeine's one that I've, people just fail to make the link between caffeine consumption and sleep. I mean, I, I think we all know it gives us energy and it's kind of a false energy as well, because, you know, ultimately what it's doing is uh, kind of blocking the receptors in the brain that, uh, normally adenosine, which builds up to create this sleep pressure and the sleepiness. So caffeine blocks that. So you don't, so you don't feel tired, but that adenosine is still collecting. So once the caffeine does wear off, that's why you get that crash where you feel that wave of sleepiness. Mm. So it's one of those things. So many people use caffeine to combat being tired, where if they could really address the issue of getting more sleep, they may not need as much caffeine. So another thing, it's a, the, podcast of vicious cycles today because it's tough i mean it's easy to get caught up in that where and, and it becomes so habitual i mean it's, i've worked with clients in the morning and they say well don't talk to me until i have my caffeine and it's i mean it, you know it is a drug but at the same time it's become such a habit for many people they just it's first thing in the morning they just have their coffee yeah i've had clients it cut it out and say oh yeah it didn't even it didn't even bother me i don't even know why i was <laughs> i don't even know why i was drinking it or you know i'll say do you feel like it gives you energy or what and they'll, you know sometimes they're at a point where like you said it's just become a routine and has nothing to do with the coffee itself so the bottom line is if you're struggling with sleep don't underestimate the impact that caffeine can have on you know your your sleep quality especially if you're a poor metabolizer 
and, you know, try cutting it out before noon, see what happens, try cutting it all, all together, give it a week. And if the thought of cutting caffeine absolutely paralyzes you, then I think that's something to look deeper into because what are we using caffeine for? Is it being a crutch for energy? And if our, our sleep, our hormones, our diet, and all of those things are in check, then ideally we don't, we, we shouldn't have to rely on caffeine as a, a main source of fuel for focus or anything like that, because our bodies should be capable of doing those when they're properly nourished and, um, you know, well slept. Yeah. And it's, it's important to just understand too. I mean, we all metabolize it differently, but in general, caffeine has about a half-life of about five to seven hours, which means after five to seven hours, half that caffeine is still in your system. Mm. And that doesn't mean it's gone. I mean, there's nothing benign to that 50% mark. And you think, I mean, a cup of Folgers has approximately maybe 70 milligrams of coffee. You go to Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, a medium coffee has about it, it's different, but around 120 milligrams. And then you see some of these energy drinks that have two, 300 milligrams. So you're thinking if I have an energy drink, you know, five to seven hours later, there's still 150 milligrams of ca- caffeine in my system, which is more than a cup of coffee. So, and it builds throughout the day. So you just, it's something I never connected. And I, the biggest thing with caffeine is I always told myself a story that it had no impact on me because I can drink a pot of espresso, pot of espresso, a shot of espresso, pot of coffee, energy drink. And I can actually go fall asleep. I'm pretty good at that. But I had a sleep study done on myself and found that my quality of sleep was awful with this. Mm -hmm. So here I am my whole life saying caffeine has no impact on me. It's not a big deal. And I go back and if it didn't have an impact on me, I probably wouldn't drink it. But more times than not, there's so many clients I've worked with that just have that same mentality where it's, well, caffeine, I can still fall asleep with it. So it's not going to matter. But we don't realize some of the negative impacts it has on our sleep, even if we're drinking it, you know, at two, three o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. And, and also too hidden sources of caffeine, you know, green tea extract, they're putting that in a lot of, you know, certain supplements or protein powders, you know, pre-workout has become very popular, especially among my generation, pre-workout stimulants. Um, so if you're working out later in the day too, for instance, doing something like that, taking, um, you know, any of those supplements, be very careful. They're, they're not regulated. And oftentimes they do have ingredients that do have stimulants in them, as well as, you know, chocolate. There's a little bit of natural caffeine in dark chocolate. So if you're eating, you know, large amounts of chocolate before bed and you notice that you're a poor metabolizer, or again, having poor sleep, those are some little kind of things that you might want to dial in on as well. I love chocolate. Yeah, and even, yes, so do I. And decaf coffee even has small amounts. So if I know people that would drink a pot of decaf coffee before bed and the accumulation ended up being enough to negative impact their sleep. And a little fun fact that any coffee drinker is actually light roast coffee has more caffeine than dark roast. I used to think it was the other way around, but the way the coffee bean roasting process works, as you roast it more, it kind of burns off some of that caffeine. So I used to get light roast thinking I was saving caffeine and I was actually getting more. Yeah. Wow. I did not know that. Um, Adderall and Ritalin too are very common, um, you know, medications that people get prescribed to for ADHD and things like that. And I personally was on it for about four years, which I did not need it. I was using it because I thought I needed it. And that significantly impacted it. So people should be definitely aware of that as well. And then, as you mentioned too, um, you know, things like teas, herbal teas, even if they are green teas or black teas, jasmine tea, those things still have caffeine in it as well. So if you are very sensitive, just keep in mind there is caffeine. 
Yeah, and Adderall is an interesting one because ADHD, I was diagnosed when I was 27. And I, I've actually kind of shifted and don't take the Adderall anymore because I've realized when I was diagnosed with ADHD, I was getting about four hours of sleep on a regular basis. And what's very interesting is if you look at the symptoms of ADHD, they're very, very similar to those of someone that is not sleeping or has sleep deprivation. So that inability to focus, maintain attention, uh, the deficient learning, behavioral difficulties, and mental health instability are all things. So as I got more sleep, it was amazing how those symptoms actually, I'm not, I'm not saying if, I mean, you know, if you have ADHD, you may have ADHD, but it's something I always talk about because doctors are often, sometimes they'll be more quick to prescribe something like that as opposed to looking at maybe the root of the issue. Yeah. I mean, I could, you know, I could do a whole episode. I should do a whole episode on it because it's, you know, also very direct, directly related to gut health. And I was diagnosed with ADD and was able to come off the medication, but you know, my, my symptoms were likely due to the fact that I had really poor gut health. Um, you know, a very strong history of antibiotic use, also anxiety. I was, you know, really struggling with anxiety And when I came off of Adderall, which was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do, because that was a a big adjustment for me relying on that medication, I really focused in on my sleep. I really focused in on my diet and, and everything, every other aspect, my stress, you know, managing my stress and everything like that. And then that, that reliance on that medication was no longer because of that. So the, the power of diet and lifestyle and sleep, uh, there's definitely something to be said so again, let's evaluate the root cause of why we're relying on these stimulants in general. Yeah. And I think of the same thing with caffeine, because it is, it is it's interesting when I was taking my Adderall more frequently when I was younger, it was like, I almost felt like I couldn't function without it. You know, yeah. and it was amazing. And it's the same, we have, we tell the same stories with coffee too. Yeah. And by no means, like I said, I'm not against it, but I just protect that afternoon. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And Last one, or I guess last two. So hormonal imbalance is big. I work with a lot of females, especially those who are transitioning through menopause. You know, any sort of changes in hormones can definitely disrupt your sleep, whether it's um, estrogen, progesterone, those two hormones, as well as testosterone, whether you're male or female, those can play a significant role in your sleep quality and quantity. I won't dive too much into it because I've done previous episodes on the importance of hormone balance and then an unhealthy gut. So data suggests that there are very specific consequences of certain gastrointestinal functioning related to several GI disorders, things like inflammatory bowel disease, GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease. You know, if anybody's ever tried to go to bed after eating, you know, a big plate of spicy chicken wings, for instance, you know that heartburn is not a recipe for a good night's sleep. Irritable bowel syndrome, and the list goes on, but having an unhealthy gut is going to significantly impact your sleep as I already touched upon, you know, those neurotransmitters, the dopamine, the serotonin, the melatonin, all of that is directly connected to your gut health. And we can kind of talk about what's happening when you're sleeping, you know, your stomach acid should be going down. And so if you're having a big meal close to bed, then you're asking your body to digest food, process it. And, and what did we talk about happens when we're going to sleep? We're, our body temperature is going down. We're kind of going into this relaxation and reset stage. And if we are eating close to that time, especially you know, meals that are high in fat, high in fiber, and you know, large amounts of carbohydrates, 
we see that that can be really tough on the digestive system if you're going into a state of rejuvenation and, and then putting an event like that really close to sleep. Yeah, it just it ties everything together. I mean, at the end of the day, we I, I'm just looking at my notes and just seeing like with, I mean, hormones are one thing and just seeing how all the things are going on in your body while you're sleeping. But to tie back to kind of the emotional regulation, I mean, we when we are sleep deprived, we're not getting adequate sleep. Our prefrontal cortex, where it's like the logical, rational decision, decision maker in our brain is one of the first to shut down allowing like our emotional center to kind of take control. So, I mean, it's, it's just so interesting at so many different levels, how, you know, your sleep at night can really impact you the following day and beyond and how, what you do during the day can impact how you sleep at night. Yeah. And in hunger levels too, right? So if anybody's ever had a, a poor night's sleep, I can speak to this. If I don't sleep well, I am like ravenous the next day. I am typically gravitating towards things like sugar or carbohydrates. And that is a lot of the reason because it increases our hunger hormone ghrelin, which makes us feel hungry. And then, you know, so we lack sleep and then leptin cannot control our signal when we're full. And then ghrelin's telling us to continue to eat even more. And this also helps to describe why sleep-deprived people tend to gain weight faster and have higher uh, risk of obesity. And so, yeah, we can, I mean, we can circle back and forth about all systems of the body, but hunger hormones, that's a big one. And, and I know that specifically for me, I am ravenous and it feels like nothing can satisfy that hunger after a poor night of sleep. So yeah. let's talk, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just, it's the same thing. And the type of foods I crave too are not like I'll eat a lot and it's not like I'm eating a lot of lettuce and spinach. I'm right. eating a lot of things I probably shouldn't be eating yeah. as much as I'm eating. Yeah, definitely. Now let's talk a little bit about the immune system and sleep, especially in relation to COVID while being clear that we don't have any specific research that links poor sleep to COVID, but we do have research to support that sleep deprivation activates our immune function, which is going to increase levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines and generate an immune response. And research has also found that getting less sleep the week before you get a flu shot actually dampens your antibody production by 50%, which makes the vaccine for that flu less effective People that report getting less than seven hours of sleep each night have been shown to be three times more likely to get the common cold. And then lastly, a study done in about 70,000 women, this was a prospective study, showed that those who received five hours of sleep or less were 70% more likely to develop pneumonia. So we can see how this all ties back to you know, an increased risk for, for any sort of um, you know, sickness, whether it's COVID, whether it's pneumonia, but ideally our immune system needs that, that good quality sleep in order to protect ourselves from, you know, any sort of common cold, pneumonia, all of the above. Yeah. And it just helps res restore the, the immune function as well. So then we're able to fight. And, and there was an interesting study as well done at universities, which I always like to cite is, there's two times during the school semester where you, the the clinic, the health clinics are seeing these spikes in 
uh, check-ins and, you know, patients. And it's during midterms and finals. And you think of the behaviors, the health behaviors, they go along with that. A lot of all night staying up and studying, probably, you know, more caffeine, probably not just taking care of their health as much, maybe not exercising, maybe not moving as much. So all the things we talked about kind of lead to these, you know, two times a year that there's giant spikes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something to just keep in mind for people that are looking to, you know, there's all these fancy claims about supplements out there right now, especially for COVID. Um, I've already done a blog post on the importance of vitamin D, but sleep is a tool that you have in your toolbox to help, you know, really create a robust immune system. And so make sure that you're prioritizing it for that reason, if that's something that is important to you. Now, what is the optimal amount of sleep? I, I think in our conversation, what stuck out to me was, this is something I hear a lot of, is people saying, oh, you know, I'm the type of person that only really needs, you know, five hours of sleep and I'm fine. I'm, I'm not like most people. How would you respond to that? Yeah, it's, we, we do need sleep at the end of the day. And I, there's a quote, Matthew Walker is a researcher in sleep that just has so many valuable insights and he's been involved in so many big studies that has helped kind of get sleep. We're talking about it more. And there's a quote that I always will read to my classes that I teach. And it's from Matthew Walker. And it's with chronic sleep restriction over months or years, an individual will actually acclimate to their impaired performance, lower alertness and reduce energy levels. That low level exhaustion becomes their accepted norm or baseline. So whenever I have somebody say like on four hours of sleep, I'm fine. It's like, well, how are you measuring that? Cause you might just be working at 80% of your max, but you think you're working at hundred percent. So we, we can't use keep using subjective measures to uh, measure how we're sleeping or how we feel like, because we're going to adjust based on what our, you know, our habits and routines. Yeah. I love, I love that book, first of all. And that's where I actually gathered some of those statistics was actually through an interview with, um, Matt. And that was that I highly recommend that book to anybody. It's, it reminds me too of nutrition and health just in general with the body is, is that saying of you don't realize how sick you are until you feel that greatness of how good you can actually feel. Right. And we become accustomed to feeling poorly or, like you said, working at less than optimal capacity of human performance. And we just, we get comfortable with that or we just don't really notice it anymore because we just accept it as this is how we're supposed to feel. But in reality, we can feel much better. We just need to prioritize it and take the proper steps to get there. Yeah. And societal norms too. We wear this not sleeping as a badge of honor like working in the hospital system, I saw this all the time. I mean, if I go into work and say, man, I, I mean, I slept eight hours last night. I feel great. Oftentimes people will come back and say, well, that must be nice. I, I couldn't do that because I have, you must not be busy enough or you must not be working hard enough. So it's almost become this, you know, badge of honor to say we don't get sleep. I, I've changed that myself and say, you know, I'm not going to feel guilty for taking care of myself. Yeah, it's true. And I think that's why a lot of people do turn to, you know, these stimulants or any sort of what we'll call um, devices, I guess, that, that keep, us optim- keep us performing at what we'll consider peak optimization levels, when in reality, we're, we're, we're not designed as humans to be go, go, go constantly. And, that's, and at some point, you will wear out and you will run out of that battery that you keep pushing on. And it's, 
it's one of those things that it's hard to, to kind of sit back and take a step back and realize, okay, I need rest. I don't need to be functioning at this level hundred percent all the time. And a lot of that is ego, but a lot of that is the social pressure, as you said, and um, you know, the standard of performance. And one thing that I did notice with COVID was, you know, people were so much more understanding, right? There was, if you were late to something or if you were, you know, missing a deadline, people were, were much more likely to say, oh no, it's okay. You know, and it it makes me sad that we needed a, a pandemic for that to happen because why is it that we're putting these pressures on people to perform at these levels that our bodies are not designed to perform at? It's not healthy. No, and we were living in this like punch clock society where it's like, we'll have to be present from 7 a.m. till 6 p.m. and show my worth during this time. I mean, I took a nap before uh, before this podcast, like during my work day. You know, it's all a matter of how balance what works for you mm. and and do it and take care of yourself and not don't feel guilty doing it. Like we have to be forgiving of ourselves and we can't just let this guilt drive us to not taking care of ourselves. Yeah. So, so the optimal amount of sleep, you know, for newborns, they're sleeping like 16 hours a day. Now, as we get older, the optimal amount gets, you know, usually we'll see the start to decline. But from my research, from what I've done, especially through my thesis was that the optimal uh, in terms of health benefits and performance is getting about seven and a half hours every night. Yeah. And you'll see ranges. I've seen anywhere from like the National Sleep Foundation will say seven to nine. I hear some people will say less, but we're all different. I mean, there's no one diet for everyone. There's no one amount of sleep, but under seven hours is where we can start seeing objectively measured, measurable impairments in performance. So less than seven, I would just say, let's not do that. Let's, let's fight, fight our way up to seven the best we can. Yeah. And the, and the research that I found that showed that greater than seven was associated with, you know, negative health implications that could also be due to many other things. You know, why is the person sleeping that long? Is it, do they have mental underlying mental health issues? Is it, you know, lifestyle factors, things like that. A lot of the studies did confound for those factors, but ideally we want to kind of look at the whole picture always, you know, always looking at the whole picture. So you mentioned napping that you took a nap today. So let's let's talk about that and also that part that you talked about the sleep pressure because um, I think that that's a really interesting concept that people don't I don't think I don't think a lot of people know about this topic to begin with but I think it's so interesting to think about it and I usually I use the analogy of um, I don't know why but just a glass of water and it's almost like you have this amount of pressure that builds up and you can't, you can't drink the water till the glass gets full is what I say. So you've got a glass of water, you can't drink it till it's full. And as that glass of water starts to fill up, fill up, fill up, you want it to be all the way full before you can drink it. And it's the same way with what we call this sleep pressure for our, our ability to have a quality good night's sleep is throughout the day, you accumulate this pressure and it's not a physical pressure, right? It's a, it's a chemical pressure that eventually causes you to get to a point where you are tired, that glass is full, and then you go into a restful night's sleep because of that. And the reason why napping might not be ideal is because it can cause the dampening of this pressure, as Alexander mentioned, happens with caffeine. Is that correct? 
Yeah. And you just have to be careful too close to bedtime. I mean, and it goes back to learning your body and knowing what works. I mean, for some, if they take a nap too close, too late in the afternoon or evening, it's going to significantly impact their sleep. So I know myself, I know for me, you want naps to be approximately like less than 30 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes, or around that 90 minute mark because of the way the sleep cycle works. Because anyone that's ever taken a 45 minute nap knows you sometimes wake up and you don't know what day it is. You don't know where you are. You don't know anything. So it's because you're coming out of that deep level sleep, potentially depending on where you were in your sleep cycle. So I always, I try to use those 20 minute naps as just kind of like a quick little pick me up Mm. without significantly impacting anything in the afternoon. But I mean, I always say my recommendation is try to get the sleep you need at night. But if for some reason you can't, you can supplement with naps. I mean, it was, I mean, you know, I'm in mountain time. So I think I snapped at 10 30. So it was, you know, it was early enough where I didn't, I knew it wouldn't make a difference, but I love that glass or that full glass full of water analogy, because that's one thing that we see, especially in adults where they'll say they go to bed and they're just not tired. And what sometimes will happen is they sit on the couch or watching TV or they're on their phone and maybe they just doze off for a couple minutes. Mm. And what's that doing is almost emptying some of that glass. Right. So then you get to bed. So you almost I don't want to say, man, you kind of, you kind of waste that sleep, that sleep pressure, uh, that yeah. sleepiness that you've kind of built up throughout the day, you've kind of poured out. So then you need to kind of wait for it to fill back up. So I always say you got to listen to your body, learn your body. And when you feel yourself tired, ready to go to bed, like go, like right. we delay. We're, I think we're the only mammal on earth that delays going to sleep and also abruptly ends our sleep with a, obnoxious alarm clock so <laughs> again go back listen and when you feel tired go to bed yeah so if you're if you're someone who struggles with sleep and you're considering napping especially if you if you have trouble falling asleep if you're thinking about napping because you're really tired my advice would be wait till the end of the day let that pressure keep building up so that when you do get to that sleep it's it's again that's that you get to drink the water, essentially, you get that kind of pressure release. But if you're someone who naps, and you don't have an issue sleeping, then keep napping if you want to nap. I mean, heck, nap all day if you want. It's, it's definitely, you know, can provide benefits, relaxation, what have you. But the the key here was just, if you are someone who struggles with sleeping, especially falling asleep, or feeling like you can't kind of get into that restful night, restful, um, you know, period in the beginning, then, then try to avoid napping and wait and let that pressure build up. Now let's talk about environmental and lifestyle factors, because these are, these are important things. Um, I am definitely someone who is very picky about my sleeping environment because I know that it, it plays a huge role, especially the temperature. I cannot sleep in a hot room. I could sleep in the Arctic tundra. I mean, when I climbed Kilimanjaro, it was it was a godsend. I was loving it. People were like, Oh, like you must've just slept so well because you know, you were tired from hiking, which obviously is true, but you know, night two in the middle of the night when it drops down to very cold temperatures, I was like, this is, this is optimal. So 60 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit is what I've seen in terms of the research of the ideal temperature for sleeping. How about you? Yeah. Right. I've seen, approximately say approximately 65 so i give wiggle room i always will say if if you have trouble sleeping then just knock your thermostat down three to five degrees like start there like you don't have to go from you know 75 to you know 60 i mean when i was living in florida it was definitely a 
I think I cut my cable so I could afford to keep my room cool. Uh, but again, it was, it was, I prioritize it, but to initiate sleep, like you said, in the, you know, in our sleep cycle, like our body temperature drops, our core body temperature drops about two to three degrees. So if we're doing things that increase that it's going to have a negative impact. So one thing with environment, it kind of goes into routine as well as it was a common misconception. I, I made the mistake. And I've also heard other people is taking a hot shower before bed mm. actually helps decrease your body temperature where I used to take cold showers thinking it would help me bring it down. But what it's going to do is your body is going to try to, you know, respond and come back to homeostasis. So if you take a cold shower, it's going to increase your body temperature. If you take a hot shower, it's going to almost do a temperature dump once you get it out. And it's amazing since I've been doing that and made that part of my sleep routine, I sleep through the night so much better. If I don't shower before bed now, especially a hot shower, I will wake up oftentimes a couple of times, just kind of hot. Mm, interesting. So yeah. A way to kind of drop that temperature. I'll have to start implementing that a little bit. I mean, I, you won't catch me taking a cold shower. I'm such a baby when it comes to that. Now, cold room. So cold room is really important, but also dark room, right? So the, the darkness of the room, having any sort of light. I know they've done research in people's quality of sleep that lived in cities where they had street lights and things like that coming out. Now, there are certain things you can do in terms of buying blackout curtains or just making sure you've got the right shades, or you could just be like me and get yourself a nice little cheap eye mask that's going to block out any sort of light coming in no matter what. And then you can have that no matter where you're sleeping. Yeah. The, I never thought I'd be someone that wears a sleep mask, but I don't travel without it now. Now, fortunately, my, I'm living in Denver now in my brother's basement and it's pitch black. It's amazing. But when I was living in Florida, I had these big floor to ceiling windows and even the blackout curtains didn't get dark enough. So the sleep mask, it's, if you get the right ones, it's, I mean, they actually have like a little pocket so you can actually blink without having pressure on your eyes. So it's a lot different than I thought, but my general rule of thumb is if you can hold your hand out stretched and see your hand, it's not dark enough. Yeah. That's, so a that's just, rule our eyelids are very thin and even just a little light can impact that. So I always make a game of it. Like when I go into my room, like if you have any of like modem lights or any of these lights from TVs or chargers, like get some electrical tape and just block them out. Mm. I think that's an easy win to just cover the, any little light. Cause it's amazing what that can do. You wake up tonight and you just see a little blinking green light and it's enough to throw you off. Yeah. And this, is, this segues into a good topic. A lot of people will fall asleep to the television or keep the television on while they're sleeping. And I would strongly advise against this, um, you know, especially in the bedroom, watch TV outside of the bedroom and then go to bed. But having that light again in the bedroom can be really detrimental to your quality of sleep. And, you know, that's, that's just my recommendation to clients based on what I've seen in the research. Yeah. I say, make it, make your bedroom a sanctuary conducive to sleep. I mean, I don't even have a, I haven't had TV in my bedroom probably 10 years now because I mean, the blue light alone is a reason that's going to stimulate you and probably keep you from having good quality sleep also the noise, like if you're falling asleep with it on our body, we're good at adjusting to consistent noise, which is why white noise machines are another thing I recommend, but inconsistent noise. So if you live in a city, like these beeps, the honks, the helicopters coming in, whatever it may be, or the TV can disrupt us. So kind of like when you drink alcohol, how you kind of wake up without even realizing it, the same thing can happen. So even if you think you're getting good quality sleep, these are things that can have an, have an impact on you. Mm. 
Absolutely. And so we can kind of talk about blue light blocking. Um, blue light blocking glasses are all the rage right now. And I even have them. I have like, yeah, there you go. I love it. <laughs> For those who are only listening, he's, he just put his blue light blocking glasses fancy on. Fancy ones. Very fancy. Um, yes. So blue light has been shown to negatively impact um, quality of sleep. But interesting enough, you know, I looked at this research study by... Um, He was a sleep researcher at Flinders University, and he concluded that blue light might not be the big issue, although it definitely can impact our quality of sleep. It's usually, he's concluding that it's actually more the fact that these devices are so activating and they're, I mean, these devices are designed to trigger alertness. And so if you're going on scrolling through Instagram, checking your email, you're getting notifications, you're getting text messages, the, these devices are, are meant to alert you. So it's important to keep that in mind that, you know, do you need to spend $300 on blue light blocking glasses? Unlikely, I would say invest in like a nine or $10 pair. If you're, if you're interested in it, there's also certain things that you can do on your phone where you turn down the blue light. There's things you can do on your computer apps. You can get for your computer to do that. But generally, a lot of it is that's, you know, spending time on the screen and and what that's actually doing to activating the part of your brain when you're supposed to be going into that kind of relaxation stage. Yeah, I'm cautious. Like, I like the blue light glasses. I think it's a it's a middle ground. But at the end of the day, I try to just if you can remove things like trying to watch, not watching TV, getting off the computer screen. I always tell people if you can read it in the dark, then it's emitting some form of blue light. Even if you do have the settings on your phone, like it might help, but at the same time, that's why I say if you can use like a Kindle or one of those ones, that's actually like that true paper, but reading on an iPad, like I actually like actual paper books, like ones with paper pages. If you remember those, I like reading those. <laughs> Me too. Uh, it's amazing. And it's just, it, it builds into that routine where, you know, I shower, I go, I start reading a book. I have dimming lamps in my, in my bedroom. So they progressively dim for 30 minutes. Mm. So it kind of naturally uh, takes us into that darkness. And it kind of goes back to when you said you were uh, out hiking or climbing Kilimanjaro. I mean, we suppress darkness. Like it's, we're in a constant state of light now. And if anyone that camps or goes outside or spends time out there, it's amazing how early you go to bed. Cause you're, when you're not, you know, under the mercy of technology lights and all these things. But when you naturally let your, you listen to the kind of the rhythm of your body. Yeah. I mean, let's pull evolution into, into the conversation. (laughs) Not really, but if we did, yeah, let's talk about the fact that when, when the, the light of the day goes down, our body starts to produce melatonin, which is a hormone that signals sleep. And so our bodies are naturally designed to be going to bed at that time. And so if we're, again, trying to work against it and we've got all this artificial light, that's going to negatively impact. So I honestly, I'll wear my blue light blocking glasses if I'm working later than I should be. They make me feel better about my Hmm. sleep hygiene. They make me feel better about the fact that I'm doing something that I wouldn't like to be doing. Um, And they can definitely help, but, but it's, let's look at the big picture. Now, there are certain tools that I'll use with my clients, just little, you know, we're, we're talking more of like symptom management, stuff like that. Often um, things like valerian root and lemon balm tea, these can be having more of a sedative effect. 
My CBD oil, as I've mentioned previously, is really great for bringing your body towards that sleep stage and helping you relax. Um, there's several mechanisms for how CBD kind of works with the body's endocannabinoid system to help promote sleep. And I've done a whole episode on that. So people can go listen to that if they want. And then the last one is melatonin. There is some good research specifically um, with helping reducing symptoms such as irritable bowel syndrome and you know acid reflux and things like that. But melatonin, as I mentioned, is a hormone that is naturally produced by the cells in our gut. So if your gut is not healthy, you're not going to be producing melatonin. Um, so sometimes supplementing with uh, a small amount can improve people's symptoms. And it also has been shown to have a beneficial impact on our immune system and can act as an antioxidant. But oftentimes I'm saying, let's get to the root cause of why they're, they're benefiting from it because often, often we're not seeing that people have melatonin deficiency just naturally. It's usually some sort of underlying gut issues, hormone imbalance, or, um, you know, all of the other factors that we talked about that are impacting, um, our body in general. Yeah, and I think it just it goes into routine too. I mean, anything that you can do to kind of build into that routine. I know people that take a number of different things. I've worked with clients before that have done some bizarre things that there wasn't really any sound research around, but it wasn't harming them. And mm -hmm. if it was part of the routine and not hurting their sleep, I mean, they, then they go for it. I, mean, I think that's that's what really helps for me is building that strong routine and being consistent with it. I think consistency more than anything else is going to help us. And like when I think of like as the night goes, I try to protect those two hours before bed. Like that's, I think the most important, I mean, oftentimes at two hours before bed, we are doing a note, we're on our phone, we're ch checking our email one last time. We're doing a number of things, even if we think it might be beneficial exercise, for example, too close to bed can have a negative impact on our quality of sleep. Even though exercise early in the day can help us fall asleep faster, stay asleep longer <clears throat> and get overall better quality of sleep. But I always go back and think of if you want to improve the quality of sleep, I look at three things. I look at heart rate, body temperature, and metabolism. Mm. And we want to make sure we're doing things that will not increase those before bed. So if you exercise too close to bed, heart rate, body temperature, metabolism probably goes up. If you eat too close to bedtime, metabolism goes up. If you're watching if you're on your phone, watching anything stimulating, it can increase these things. So it's like, those are some easy things I always kind of go through my head as I'm about to get into an activity, even talking on the phone. Like there's been times I'll turn down phone calls within two hours. Cause if it's someone that's going to work me up, then I just know it's going to have a negative impact on me falling asleep. Yeah. I don't know how people watch these like intense shows. If I'm going to bed, I need to be watching the office or new girl or something super neutral because I am not going to be watching like game of Thrones or, you know, anything like that before I go to bed. I also notice it really impacts my dreams, but I love that. I love those that kind of would segue into what your three takeaways would be for the listener, you know, of, of what you would say the person could do tonight to implement, to impact, to benefit their quality of sleep. Yeah. And I go back, there's, when we look at sleep mechanics, we want, we look at sufficiency, regularity, and efficiency. So sufficiency is getting enough sleep, what you need. So that's, you know, seven and a half ish hours regularity is being consistent. And I think this is one of the biggest mistakes people make is they go to bed a different time every night. Mm. And any kids or brown kids, they have a strict bedtime routine. They brush their teeth, they take a shower, they wind down, they read a book, and then they go to sleep. They have a bedtime. 
I mean, as adults, like it was funny when I started doing research on signal, I'm like I don't even have a bedtime. Like I kind of have a ballpark, but it's amazing. Like stick to that regularity. Cause if you're jumping more than an hour from when you go to bed each night and wake up, you're putting yourself into almost like a self-induced jet lag. Mm-hmm. And anyone that's experienced jet lag, it's not a fun thing to be in. So it's that. And then efficiency is another big one. That's something that I, I wear a whoop, which is a recovery tracker. There's a number of different wearables out there. I kind of think of it as like a pedometer. Like it gives you in the ballpark. It's not an exact science. It's not measuring brain waves. Uh, they actually use uh, actigraphy to uh, kind of monitor how much you're moving. And then it puts in an algorithm and kind of estimates your sleep. So it's not perfect, but it gives you a ballpark. And one of the biggest things I realized when I was started to wear these is my efficiency. Like we think uh, many times we'll go and I went to bed at 10 o'clock. I woke up at six. So I got eight hours of sleep. No, I gave myself eight hours of opportunity to sleep, but was I actually sleeping for eight hours? And so, and that's the thing that's interesting as we age, we get less efficient at sleep. So we actually need more time in bed to get the same amount of sleep. So oftentimes as people get like older adults, we'll say, Oh, I don't need as much sleep. Well, it's just cause you're not sleeping. Doesn't mean you need less. It's just, we're not giving ourselves the opportunity. And there's a number of different, you know, physical ailments and disease and things that could impact that. But I always just say we need to protect that and make sure we're giving ourselves enough time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so think of it like tonight, like come up with a bedtime, like count backwards. If you need to wake up at six o'clock, then the latest you should be going to bed is about 10 because that's going to give you about eight hours uh, of opportunity. But I always say give it time too. I mean, it's going to take some time to adjust. We're creatures of habit. And if we're so used to going to bed at, midnight and you try to go to bed at nine o'clock tonight, you're probably not going to be tired yet. So that's why I like those small incremental uh, shifts in sleep. But I always go and say, what are the things that you do during the day that could impact us at night? And I just think like you mentioned earlier, earlier, Aaron, we we're constantly go, 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 go. We wake up. Many of us use our phones or alarm clocks. So the first thing we do is check our email and then we get right into work and we go, go, go. More, more times than not, especially in today's world, we're in meetings back to back, back to back, back. We're in front of a computer even more. And the first time we actually give our brain a chance to just stop is when we put our head on the pillow. Mm. And then we wonder why our brain is going a mile a minute as opposed to winding down. So that's why I like building in like meditation or just deep breathing or just free time to just think, like let the thoughts happen uh, when you're not laying in bed. But I think, you know, come up with a good routine for bed and really calculate your bedtime and stick to it. Make it a non-negotiable. I mean, the things that we value, we will find the time and energy for. And I think we just need to start valuing sleep. Uh, I've gotten to a point where I won't even, I try not to sacrifice sleep to even get up and work out where it used to be like, well, I need exercise. So I'll sacrifice sleep. It's kind of a, I mean, I think you could talk to, I mean, nutrition, exercise, sleep in the physical realm, I mean, I've been asked which one's most important and I just don't answer because I think they're equally important, but you can't sacrifice one for the other. Because if I exercise and eat well, but don't sleep, like you said in your thesis, it can lead to weight gain, you know? So it's a balance of the, the three that we have to make sure that we're doing. Yeah. And, and you modify, right? So you modify your exercise based on the sleep that you get. You're not going to be waking up and doing a high intensity interval training, things like that. 
Um, but yeah, I think, you know, those are great tips and, and it's, it's really important. Make it a non-negotiable, make it a priority. I get a lot of crap for going to bed early sometimes, you know, and, and I don't care because I wake up feeling rested. I attack the day and I feel so much better when I stick to a a relative schedule and I'm also human. So there are times when I'm up way past when I want to be and, you know, have a drink here and there, you know, you don't want to create a life where you're completely void of social events or, you know, things that do bring you joy and allow you to connect with other people. But, um, you know, at what cost you decide, are you going to be spending an extra hour checking email or an extra hour scrolling through Instagram or, you know, what, what have you, you have to decide what's, what's priority to you and, and realize the impact that these things can have on your sleep quality. And then what the downstream effects of those are is just, that knowledge so that you guys can, who are listening, can have the education to make an informed decision and understand that a lot of these things are in your control and that you do have the power to change your health through implementing even just one thing at a time. No, I love that. And I think it's just tying it together. I mean, I'll, I try to reflect if I get a poor night's sleep or I stayed up late watching sports or just screwing around on my phone, like in the morning, when you feel like, when you feel tired, when you wake up, like think back and say, what I do that got in the way of my sleep. Cause oftentimes it's not, it's not like we're spending more time with our family or we're doing meaningful things. It's often a time where we're kind of winding down and we've, we extend that wind down. You know, so many people say, well, I, do, I get home and I just need to wind down. Well, do you need to do it for three hours or could we do maybe a half hour of winding down and then kind of get into bed, but build a routine because performance and productivity are both impacting negatively. And I, I think of that, it's the analogy I've heard is, when you see workers that constantly aren't getting enough sleep, it's almost like they're, they can look busy, but they're not moving forward. It's almost like they're on a stationary bike. Uh, people are less likely to take on challenges. They'll take on simpler tasks. I mean, think about on a Friday where if you stay up later than you want and, you know, or Thursday night, you stay up too late and you go and I'm checking my email. I'm, I'm doing like the low hanging fruit, but I'm not doing like the high level functioning tasks that I need to be doing for my role job as job or spending time with family. So it's just connecting it all together and realizing the impact that just getting a little more sleep can do for you as a human. Yeah. You might think you're more productive by giving yourself more, more hours in the day, but it's the quality of that work and that, you know, how present you are with your friends, your family, all of that, that you're actually not getting ahead in life by doing it. You're actually getting behind and the quality of your performance and and the things around it are, are suffering. So all right, Alex. Well, the final, I am sorry. I keep calling you Alex Alexander. It's all right. um, what is your favorite childhood memory with food? That's a good one. So I've been thinking about this a lot as you, when you, when you kind of prime me with that, I think we have a, my family makes this, I guess it's a very Midwestern dish. I'm from Western Pennsylvania, a small town called Meadville and it's called pretzel salad. And during holidays, we always had this pretzel salad. And what this pretzel salad is, it's not a salad at all. Let me preface by saying that, but it's a, it's like a, it's in an 11 by nine pan or whatever they are. And it's a layer of crushed pretzels, butter, and sugar, and it's baked. So it's crispy. And then there's a layer of cream cheese and whipped cream mixed together. And then there's a layer of jello on top. Very interesting. But, uh, it's definitely one of those nostalgic foods that whenever I go home, my mom makes and, you know, I try to eat it in moderation, obviously, but there have been times where I have failed at that. And I just, that's one of those foods too. Like as I've, as I've gotten older and brought friends home, like it's one of those bizarre foods that no, a lot of people have never had before. 
and the combination for some may not sound good, but just know it's delightful and delicious. I am so on board with pretzel salad and I'm just like wondering, I'm going to, can I look this up online? Can I make uh, Google? Yeah. Oh, it's, a, it's all over the Google. That's amazing. No, I, I put together some weird concoctions, so no judgment. All I like all of those things, put them together. I think it's even better. Exactly. It's good. So where can people find you if they're interested in getting in touch with you? Yeah, I, I was actually free of all social media for about five years. So I'm just getting back in the game. So I have a MySpace account that is probably the best way. I'm kidding. Uh, I have Instagram, but it's my first and last name. It's alexander.christ. Uh, and I've LinkedIn as well, both ways to get kind of get a hold of me. But I love hearing from people. So if anyone wants to just reach out, I love just having conversations, learning. And, you know, I always go back when it comes to sleep, like, for every challenge we have, there's a potential solution. Like let's not focus on the barriers, the challenges, but let's look at it as an opportunity to overcome it. And I think sometimes it just takes kind of some discussion, talking, trial and error to get to where we want to be with sleep. Mm, I love that. Well, thank you so much, Alexander, for coming on today. I really appreciate you taking the time and I will talk to you soon. Hey, thank you. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk. Of course. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you are interested in working one-on-one with me to improve your health and get to the root cause of why you aren't reaching your health goals, please visit nutritionrewired.com where you can also find my book, Rewire Your Gut. This is a great resource for anybody who's looking to improve their health and a really great place to start if you are kind of confused about nutrition and gut health and you're looking for some recipes to make that change really delicious. So thanks again for tuning in. As always, don't forget to share the health. 